Well, Hebrews chapter 2 is, is where we're going to be this afternoon. If you have not turned there, ter- take your Bible and turn to Hebrews 2. We're going to be in verses 14 to 18. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. And I'm going to preach a section in this book of Hebrews that deals with the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. We're going to talk about the identification of Christ with human beings. He came to save and to help and to identify and to save sinners from divine wrath. Follow with me as I read our section, Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Here's the word of the Lord. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those Who are tempted. What is man's greatest need? If you were to go to work tomorrow morning or your college or your university and ask the question, what is the greatest need of human beings? What kind of answers do you think that you would hear? Perhaps in order of importance and priority in the hearts of many, they might say, well, my greatest need is to have happiness or to have money or or to feel loved. Or somebody might say, I want to have power or or I must have freedom. Maybe others might say, I want to have a, a sense of belonging, a sense of belonging, or I really want to have peace of mind. I want to have peace of mind. And maybe, maybe you can relate to some of those. Maybe some of those might be fairly popular, prominent, and perhaps legitimate in some sense. But however popular or prominent those answers might be, there's one glaring omission with all of those answers. The greatest need of all human beings is very quite simple, and the Bible makes it very clear all through the pages of the Bible. The greatest need of human beings is to be forgiven by God. The greatest need for all men and women is for God to forgive their sins and to give them eternal life. That is the greatest need of every person everywhere in the world. However young or old, whatever background, culture, context, or way of life, man's greatest need is for God to forgive your sins and to give them eternal life. And that's exactly what our passage in Hebrews chapter 2 
is about today. Now remember, Hebrews is originally a sermon. It was a sermon. It was a word of exhortation that was then written down. And what the author is doing is he is showing in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, he is showing that Jesus is better. He's better than anything or everything this world offers. And the proof for that is Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus is God. He is God. You remember these amazing declarations in chapter 1 verse 2, where God speaks in the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom God made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's like the preacher wants you to know Jesus is better than the angels because he's God. He's God. And then he proves it in the rest of chapter 1 with citation after citation after citation from the Old Testament. And then we come to chapter 2, and in Hebrews chapter 2, the author wants you to understand the humanity of Jesus. He wants you to know that this God is also man. He is real man, genuine man, truly man, and the massive implications of the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. Now, why would the preacher want you to know this? Why does he begin by telling you that Jesus is better and he proves it because he is God and he is man? Why does the preacher begin with that? Here's the reason. Because the preacher wants to strengthen your faith and he wants to encourage a tighter commitment to Christ. Whatever persecution Whatever opposition, whatever trials, whatever pain, and the original audience had a lot of trials they were going through. And sometimes they might feel like they ought to abandon Christ and go back to their Judaism. It's easier, it's safer there, there's not as much opposition there. And the author says, no, 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 cling to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. But then you wonder, yeah, but, but Jesus became a man. The God-man, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. He became a real man. Does that detract from the fact that Jesus is better? And the author says, oh, no, no, no. It actually enhances the fact that Jesus is better. God's plan to save sinners was necessary for him to take on human flesh to redeem man. I mean, doesn't it seem foolish, though, for God to become a man? Doesn't it seem foolish for God to become a a man in this plan of redemption? How does that make Jesus better? Well, it makes him better because he became like us. And he did what we could not do. And yet it benefits us in a way that we could never achieve or accomplish it on our own. It's the very act of God's grace that makes salvation possible and all of the promises that come with it through the incarnation of God. The God-man to save men and women like you and me. Well, we come to the end of this wonderful argument in chapter 2. And Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18 is where we are this afternoon. And I want to 
I want to preach on the incarnation and the humanity of Jesus. And I simply want to share with you and preach to you the truth of this paragraph. Jesus relates to you. He relates to you. He relates to you. And you might say, okay, I get it. I know the Christmas story. I know that Jesus became a man. I understand that. So what? In our outline, I want to give you four astonishingly personal realities. I don't think the air conditioning is working, is it? It's hot in here. Four astonishingly personal realities. The incarnation of Christ is so amazing, it is so breathtaking, it is such an act of the wisdom of God in his great plan. I want to give you four astonishingly personal realities. Christian, I want you to get these. I want you to write these down. I want you to go back to them tomorrow morning and you pray through them and you worship the Lord and you're reflecting and you're meditating on God's word all week long. Let these carry you along. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you need to listen up to this because this is the only exit off of the highway to hell. The only exit is hearing the truth that is found right here in this passage. So I hope and pray that it will be a wonderful blessing to all that are here. Here's the first astonishing reality. Number one, he, Jesus, he understands you. The fact that he is a man, the fact that he took on human flesh is an amazing truth. He understands you. Sometimes the people might say, oh, no, nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody understands me. And nobody understands my past. Nobody understands my way of life. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Wrong. Jesus does. Look at Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise, also partook of the same so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. There's a hook word connecting this paragraph with the one we looked at last week, and it's the word children. In verse 13, Jesus is saying, I and the children whom God has given to me, we are trusting, we are worshiping, we are singing to the Father together. We are brothers with Jesus. We we are children of God. Verse 14, well, since we, the children, have flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same. We come to one of the great doctrines of Christianity and church family. We can never give this up. We can never cave on this. It is the reality that Jesus is a real, genuine human. It is a core theological truth that Jesus had to be a real man like you and me in order to represent us as human beings before God. You know, there was an early Christian heresy that was sort of floating around in the early centuries. The heresy was called docetism. Docetism. It it was the teaching that Jesus is God, but he kind of only appeared to be a man. He, He only seemed to be a real man. He kind of like a floating phantom floating around because he's truly God, but he's not truly man. And sometimes that floats around even still today. 
where people say, oh, yeah, he's God. But there's a downplaying of the humanity, the real genuine humanity of Christ. And yet verse 14 absolutely shatters that thinking. It shatters that false idea. Also, the Greek dualistic idea that the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. This verse destroys that thinking. Jesus became the God-man. He took on real, genuine human flesh. Why? Verse 14. So that he would partake of the same flesh and blood to relate to us. To understand us. Verse 14. So that through his death, God can't die, but humans do. Jesus took on human flesh so that through his death, verse 14, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Talk about a lesson worth studying here for a minute. The devil, verse 14, he has the power of death. Talk about the one who is the the, the master killer. The one whose masterpiece is death and killing, Satan, he's like the happy giver of death. Jesus calls him a murderer. Satan is like one of those deceitful beings who hugs you, but then he stabs you. Satan is one of those deceitful beings who kisses and then he slays. Satan loves death. He advocates death. He wants death. We know that from Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, he deceives many people. Satan knows he's going to eternal death in the lake of fire, and he wants to take as many there with him as he can. And, and this is not new to us. We understand that theologically, but, but, but church family, this is a reality in our day. Abortion. Abortion is proof that Satan, as the one who has the power of death, has great activity in our day. Euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, all of the violence all around us, the taking of one's own life, the murder, the killings, the riots, the population control, pills, hard drugs, fentanyl, false doctrine is one of Satan's masterpieces as well. Deception, giving a little bit of truth and putting a little error in there as well. And endless others that are harmful and hurtful and bring death. I think in the context of the church, one of Satan's great masterpieces is that of false teaching, deception. He can give he can give truth and then mix it with a little bit of error. In the world, one of Satan's greatest masterpieces is abortion, the willful killing and murder of innocent human beings. And verse 14 tells us that that we share in flesh and blood, and so did our Savior. He partook of the same so that through his death, he renders, look at the verb in your Bible, verse 14, he renders powerless the devil. The Greek word render powerless means he's disarmed. It means he's crushed. Satan is a defeated foe, church family. He's defeated. 
His head has been crushed at the cross. And even though God is absolutely sovereign over everything, Satan exercises power over the realm that he loves, and that is the realm of death. But as John Owen put it, the death of death is found in the death of Christ. The death of death is found in the death of Christ. The work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, totally undoes the work of Satan. Satan is ineffective, he's inoperative, he's a defeated foe, he's already crushed in, in the head with the death blow by Jesus at the cross. And that's the importance of the Incarnation. Jesus had to take on human flesh so that he would be the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, taking on real humanity so that he might relate to you, so that he would understand you, so that he could die and render powerless the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. All who hear and believe in Jesus Christ have passed out of death. Listen to John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but he has passed out of death into life. What good news! What good news that Jesus has taken on real, genuine human flesh. He is the incarnate Son of God. And through faith in Him, you have passed out of death into life. If you have never done that before, today you must look to Jesus Christ and live. The second person of the Trinity took on human flesh. He became incarnate. Why? The first astonishing reality, the amazing reality is that he, he understands you. More on that as we go through our passage together. But, but get that, church family. He understands you. He took on real human flesh. He knows what it is to suffer. And he died. And through his death, he rendered powerless. The devil. If you're taking notes, jot down this second astonishingly personal reality. Not only does he understand you, number two, he frees you. An amazing reality that verse 15 is going to bring out, and we could spend weeks on this verse because I and we are biblical counselors, and we love the Word of God, not just the doctrine of the Word of God, but how it changes lives. Look at verse 15. So what does Jesus do? Well, he renders powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15. And he, Jesus, he frees those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I mean, verse 15, you might write in your notes, this is the great rescue operation. This is the rescue operation that Jesus frees people from the fear of death. I remember when I was in seminary, I had my laptop open and my Bible in front of me. It was a biblical counseling class. 
And I remember coming to this verse and it was like I had never seen it before in my life. And we began discussing in this biblical counseling class how the work of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus has the ability to actually liberate you from the fear of death. It is, as some people have called it, the king of terrors, afraid to die, afraid to die. Maybe you know the name Leo Tolstoy, a 19th century Russian author. He said, man cannot possess anything so long as he fears death. If the fear of death has a grip on someone, it doesn't matter what you have and what you do, he said. A recent survey of of American fears showed that 20% of Americans are afraid or very afraid of dying. That's one out of five people. There's a phobia, a phobia. A lot of people have phobias and there's a lot of phobias out there. But one of the phobias is thanatophobia from the Greek word, the fear of dying. It is the intense, often irrational fear of death that can consume someone's thoughts. It can affect their lifestyle. It can affect their decisions. It can affect the things that they do because they're deathly afraid of dying. Like a a little child who comes in the middle of the night to mom and dad's room and says, "I'm, I'm afraid. I'm scared. It's like an older person who might be afraid to get ill. They're afraid to suffer. They're afraid to be left alone. Maybe afraid to even die. It's like an urgent 911 call. And they shouted, if you don't get here soon, we're all going to die. A philosopher said this, quote, the fear of death never left me. I could not get used to the thought I would still sometimes shake and I would weep with terror at the thought of death. That was a philosopher who lived a few generations ago. And the thing that, 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 that absolutely terrifies people more than anything else is death. It's like that tormenting monster that stalks unbelievers. Death. What happens? The minute you die. But believer, you have no fear of death. None. You you don't need to have any fear of death. None. And the reason is right here in verse 15. Because Jesus, he took on flesh and blood. He renders powerless the devil. And verse 15, look at the work of the Son of God. Verse 15, he frees you. He frees people who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Behold the mighty power of Jesus. People say, I'm afraid to die. Actually, you're in bondage to the fear of death, biblically. You're in bondage to the fear of death. But Jesus has the power to free those who are worried to death. He frees those who are enslaved to this fear all their lives. Here's the mighty kingship of Jesus. He renders powerless Satan. 
He renders him to be absolutely powerless because Christ has a more able and a stronger weapon. He liberates his people from the shackles of death. Ponder the massive biblical counseling implications of this. We all remember a couple of years ago in COVID and all that, and people afraid, fear. And yet when, when fears get a grip on someone, they'll do anything to not die. Because they're afraid. But question for you here. Does, does the fear of death have a hold on you here today? Where in your life is there the fear of death? And to what extent is there the fear of death? Listen to Romans chapter 8. As the Apostle Paul says in verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities, things present nor things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing, nothing will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death can separate you from God's love. When Peter is preaching on Pentecost in Acts 2, 24, Peter says Jesus put an end to the agony of death. There's an agonizing fear of death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, that death is swallowed up in victory. In a wonderful gospel verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1 Verse 9, God saved us and he called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ. Verse 10, but now he has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death. Jesus came and he abolished death. Hebrews 2 tells us, That Jesus, in his great power, in his great love, in his great work, in his great saving plan, he came to free you. He came to free, to liberate you, who through fear of death, it's like you're in bondage all the days. If you know anyone who has a crippling and enslaving fear of death, you take them here. Take them here and read the context and show them the work of Christ. Show them the power of Christ. Show them the kingship of Christ. Show them the ability of Christ. Show them that Jesus has the power to free them from the bondage of the fear of death. You know, maybe a tragic example even to consider for those who are not in Jesus. For those who are not believers, death is the king of terror. It's the king of terror. It's like some arrogant macho man says, I'm not afraid of dying. And then he goes home and something happens at night and he's scared for his life. To cover up his fears. He's fearful. He's scared. He's petrified. It's like that person in the ER who's lived their whole life in defiance and rebellion and sin. And they're screaming in the ER, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then it becomes silent because they died. 
The fear of death is powerful. But there are triumphant examples. Like Stephen in the book of Acts, where Stephen is being stoned by the Jewish leaders after he preaches the gospel. And he calls them to repent and they begin to stone him, to kill him. And Stephen, in a triumphant cry, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You can, Christian, and you should, live radically for Jesus. You should live radically for Jesus because you know that death and the fear of death has no power over you. John Knox, who certainly had his own share of opposition as the Scottish reformer, his dying words were this, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh does not need to fear death. Live in Christ and die in Christ. And you don't need to fear death. But question, are you prepared? Are you ready to meet death? Boys and girls, you're healthy, you're energetic, you're full of life and vitality and energy. But you might not live till tomorrow. Teenagers, you might be going to school, looking forward to the university, getting the degree, graduating, getting a great career going. You might make money and have power and precision, position and prestige. You could have it all together, but you might not live to bring it all in. Are you ready and prepared to die? The moment you die, God will not provide you with one more minute to try to get right with God. He will not give you one more hour to then turn from your sin and then believe in Jesus. It'll be too late. Today is the day for you to look to Christ. And the amazing truth of these verses in Hebrews chapter 2 is the beauty of the incarnation. Why God became a man. Why amazing personal realities. Number one, he understands you. Number two, he frees you. And as if it it couldn't get any better than that, look at number three. He saves you. He saves you. In verses 16 and 17, we see the awesome truth. That Jesus saves. Jesus became a man to relate to you, to identify with you, to free you from death. But you might say, well, how does he do that? How does he free me from death? I need to be forgiven by God. I need to be reconciled to God. It's the opening question. What is the greatest need of man to be forgiven? How does that happen? The answer is found right here. The Bible tells us that as a sinful man, as a fallen human being, you have sinned by the virtue that you're a human being, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you're a lawbreaker. You've broken God's law. You're guilty before God. You've defied his holy name. You've offended God. And the Bible says that God's righteous anger is ignited against you. Nahum chapter 1 tells us that. Zephaniah chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You've rebelled. You chose to rebel. You've transgressed. And God is indignant with hot and angry and furious wrath 
toward every sinner. Every sinner. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins will die. Romans 6.23, the wages of your sin is death. Matthew 16, 27, he will repay every man according to his works. In Romans chapter 2, the Bible tells us that our great God will render to each person according to his deeds. How in the world can God forgive you? How can God forgive me? How can God forgive boys and girls? How can he forgive sinners? He has to punish sin. So how can you be forgiven? Look at verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 2. The author says this in verse 16, for assuredly, that is, here's a certain statement of fact. He, Jesus, does not give help to angels. Maybe a better translation from the Greek for help would be rescue. Jesus did not come to rescue angels. He did not come to deliver angels. He did not come to save angels. But, verse 16, he came to give help or rescue or deliver the descendant of Abraham. Jesus was Jewish himself. He came for the Jewish people. And of course, he came for the Gentiles as well. All humanity has an open door to this Savior. He came to save those who have the same faith as Abraham did. He believed in God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Jesus came to give help. He came to rescue humans, not angels, humans. Now, verse 17, therefore, in light of that, in light of all of the incarnation and the power of Jesus and rendering Satan to be powerless and freeing you from the fear of death, and he came to rescue humans, verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to be made like you. A baby, learning, reading, memorizing scripture, obeying, submitting to dad and mom, working, responding in a godly way. He had to be made like you in every way. He hungered, he thirsted, he was weak, he suffered, he knew what it was to go through hardship, he knew what it was to be betrayed, he knew what it was to lose loved ones, he knew what it was to go to a funeral, he knew what it was to be slandered and talked about behind his back. He can relate. He was made like his brethren, verse 17, in all things. So that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest. What's a priest do? Well, a priest is the one who makes the sacrifice. That's what a priest does. He makes the sacrifice. And yet amazingly, Jesus comes not just to make a sacrifice, but he comes to offer the sacrifice and he becomes the sacrifice himself. 
And he was merciful. You and I don't deserve it. We don't merit this. We're we're, we're in a terrible condition. We don't deserve his mercy. But he's a merciful priest and a faithful priest in things pertaining to God. He's faithful. He obeyed the Father. He obeyed God. He obeyed the law in every way. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. He's dependable. He's the promise-keeping God. This is Jesus. By the way, here in chapter 2, it's like the author opens the door for the argument that he's going to develop for the whole rest of the book. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high priest. Okay, so we understand that. He's made like us. He did not come to redeem angels. He came to rescue us. He is made like us. He's a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Well, why? Why did he come? Why did he take on human flesh? How come he relates to us? What's the goal of all of this? Look at the rest of verse 17. In order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You could come up and ask my children. They all know daddy's favorite doctrine in the Bible is the P doctrine, propitiation. I love this doctrine. Jesus Christ is the priest who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Perhaps the greatest word in all the Bible, and yet very sadly and tragically, not often known, understood, preached, and loved. It's the very heart of the gospel. If you don't have propitiation, you have no way of getting to heaven. What is the propitiation? What is it? Let me just sort of define it for you, and then I'm going to show you in the word. Propitiation simply is the turning away of anger. Jesus became a man And he's a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why? In order to turn away anger. God's anger. You see, remember what I said earlier? God is vigorously hostile to sin. And he will and he must punish all sin and all sinners in hell forever. Forever. I think when you boil everything down, if you're going to understand the death of Jesus, you can boil everything down to this concept, propitiation. Propitiation. What is it that quenches God's wrath against us? What is it that turns aside the wrath of God so that you don't receive it? What is it that obliterates all of our sins from the eyes of God? It's propitiation. It's the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, in Christian faith, in the New Testament, in Christian theology, this doctrine is absolutely central. But listen, is it central in your life? 
Is it central in your thoughts? Is it central in your worship? Is it central in your understanding that God's anger has been turned away through the person and work of Jesus? Let me introduce it again. The righteous wrath of God is his righteous and perfect and holy reaction against all of our unrighteousness. And when God displays his wrath, it is retributive justice. And the question is, I've sinned. You've sinned. Everyone has sinned. How is the wrath of God toward people presently and eternally in hell, how is that wrath quenched? How is that wrath satisfied? How is that wrath extinguished? How is that wrath turned away? Take your Bible and just turn back a few books to Romans chapter 3. I know I read it a little bit earlier, but Follow with me as I just want to read Romans 3, verse 25. And I want you to see something very carefully in Romans 3, 25. Every word matters in God's word. Notice in Romans 3, 25, the Bible says, Whom, that refers back to Christ Jesus, Whom, Christ, God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Who did the work? God. God is the one who put Jesus publicly. He lifted him up publicly. God is the one who did it. Take your Bible and turn toward the end of the New Testament, the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John is writing to a gathering of believers in the city of Ephesus. He wants them to have fellowship with God. He wants them to know if they're really truly saved. 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's the propitiation. Turn the page to chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God. It's it's not that you loved God. It's not that you picked God. It's not that you ran after God or in your free will you selected God. Verse 10, God loved us and he sent his son, here it is, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. Well, what's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is that God is the one who puts forth his son Jesus and he lifts him up on a cross. And when Jesus is on the cross, God unleashes all of his wrath upon the son so that the son is the one who satisfies the wrath of God. Listen to how J.I. Packer put it. It's so great. Jesus Christ has shielded us from the nightmare prospect of retributive justice. He shielded us from the nightmare prospect of retributive justice because he became our representative substitute in obedience to the Father's will and receiving all 
the wages of our sin in our place. Every sin you commit is going to be punished by God. Every sin you commit is going to be infinitely punished by a holy God. Every lust, every lie, every time you took God's name in vain. Listen, even the things you didn't do that you should have done. Every moment you've not loved God perfectly. Every moment you've not worshipped Jesus Christ the way he ought to be worshipped. Every sin of commission and omission must receive an infinite punishment. And yet Jesus comes as the propitiation. I love the way J.I. Packer gives three essential truths about propitiation. Number one, it's a work of God. It is a work of God. Only God, listen to this, can propitiate and save from his own anger. I can't do it. You can't do it. Nobody in eternal hell will ever say it is finished. Only God can propitiate from his own wrath towards sinners. It's a work of God. Number two, propitiation is accomplished by the death of Christ. This is what we mean when we say that Jesus died for sins. He died for me. It is all accomplished by the death of Christ. He's my representative substitute. He represents me on that cross. And he died as my substitute, taking my sin when he was there. He stands and he extinguishes the full wrath of God in our place. Not only is it a work of God, not only is it accomplished by the death of Christ. Third, it manifests God's righteousness. It shows that God is good. It shows that God is righteous. Interestingly, when there are riots in the streets, people are saying, we want justice. Oh, no, you don't. God is a just and a righteous God. And he is fair and he is good and he is righteous in punishing sinners. But praise God, he punished sinners by putting their sin upon Christ on the cross as the substitute. So we could say God is the judge who punishes my sin upon Christ on the cross. This is the beauty of Hebrews 2.17, that Jesus became a man. He's a good, a merciful, a faithful high priest. And why did all of this happen? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you understand? I love the way Michael Lawrence put it. He said, on that cross, Jesus Christ endured the holocaust of God's wrath against our sin. And he exhausted it. Jerry Bridges said, I believe a word that forcefully captures the essence of Jesus's work of propitiation is the word exhausted, that Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. It's not merely deflected. It's not merely prevented from reaching us. It was exhausted. He's like a sponge. He bore it. He took the unmitigated brunt of God's wrath 
unleashed upon the sun. Nothing held back. He took it all. John MacArthur said, God unleashed the full extent of his fury on Jesus Christ. And God, who is the punisher of all unbelievers in hell, he shows up in the darkness of Calvary to punish his son, and he gives his son eternal hell on behalf of all who would ever believe. Or maybe to boil it all down, one man said it like this. We need God to save us from God. And propitiation is the only answer to that. We need God to save us from God. Propitiation is the only answer. Now, do you understand that? Is is any of that new to you? Because if that's new to you, then you've never understood before the true meaning of the gospel, of the work of Christ. And yet this is the beauty of the real heart and soul of the Christian message. You've got to be forgiven. How? Through the propitiation of Christ. If this is new... And you've never heard this before. Then I implore you to come at once to Jesus and believe upon him. To see your dying Savior dying for you, suffering for you, absorbing the wrath of God for you. To trust in him and believe in him. Do it today. But tragically, there's some churches and pastors and podcasts and sermons and teachings and musicians that don't give the heart of the gospel. And if we get this, it means we are in debt to Christ. We are in debt to him. We owe everything to Christ. Christian. You're never really having a bad day. So what does this mean? Puritans would call this the uses. So what? What are the uses of this doctrine of propitiation? Let me give you a handful. Jot down even just these headings and you can pray through them. Number one, absolute terror. Because all unbelievers are going to receive this. All unbelievers who die in their sin are going to perish forever under God's wrath. This is absolute terror. Lord, are there just a few that are being saved? Many are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Oh, terror. The unsaved are headed there. A second use that we could jot down is the word peace. Peace. Because this kind of peace, first, with God, is a peace that only comes from God through the work of Christ. It gives peace. Peace in, in a reconciled relationship and in our hearts. 
The third use, it gives gratitude. It gives gratitude. Oh, you and I thank the Savior. We thank the Lord. We thank the Lord Jesus that he died for us, that he took our sin, that he paid our price, that we will never know one drop of God's wrath. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Number four, the fourth use of this doctrine, it gives love and security. Because this love of God is free. It's not that you loved God, it's that he loved you. He loved you. And when you're in this love, and when Jesus has died for you, there's security there. Away with that doctrine that a true believer could ever lose his salvation. Because if you could, you would. And what an absolute tragedy that shows to the cross work of Christ. For someone to say that he could save you, but he cannot secure you. What a marvelous security we have in Jesus. Number five, another use, this gives perspective. Christian, anything you have in life is all grace. Anything you have, because it's not hell. And that's what we deserve. I mean, really, that kind of puts my grumbling in its place. It puts discontentment in its place. It puts all the fear in its place. Perspective. Number six, the final use that I want to bring out here. It ought to give urgent soul winning. Urgent soul winning. Go! Jesus didn't say sit. He said go! Compel the sinners to come in. Go fishing for souls. No fisherman waits on the side for the fish to jump out to them. You go to the fish and you cast the line or you cast the net. Plead, compel, draw, beg, plead and woo sinners to Christ. What a great gospel. And this is part of the humanity, the incarnation, astonishing realities. Number one, we've seen that he understands you. Number two, that he frees you. Number three, that he saves you. Let me give you one more. Number four, if you're taking notes in our outline, let's conclude the chapter. Hebrews 2.18, number four, he helps you. He helps you. This is not he helps you be the better you. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. He helps you in your temptation. He helps you in your suffering. Look at verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Propitiation is so practical. That Jesus was tempted in his sufferings and he passed the test. He endured, and therefore he's qualified to be your helper. He's qualified to be your helper. Okay, so verse 18, he has been tempted in what he has suffered. You say, yeah, but can he relate to me? I'm tempted in a lot of ways in my life. Abandoned, lonely, grieving. Money problems, being misunderstood by people, being called a religious fanatic, stressed, terrified, tempted for personal glory, tempted for control, tempted to avoid suffering and pain. Jesus can relate to all of those. 
he's able to relate. And what's so remarkable about verse 18 that he helps you is that Jesus was tempted and get this, he never gave in. He never gave in. We, we do, we cave and we can give in when we are tempted, but Jesus didn't. So he experienced temptation to the maximum degree in ways that we never will because we, we sin and we give in, but he didn't. He didn't. Beloved flock, what temptations do you have? What temptations do you have in your life? What trials are you facing? Is it fear? Is it discontentment? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it covetousness? Is it love of money? Is it a craving for man-pleasing? Is it sexual sin? Whatever that temptation is that comes your way and comes your way and comes your way, you need to listen to verse 18 that Jesus has been tempted in the ways in which he suffered and he's able to come to the help. I love the Greek word for help. It's the word that speaks to this. He runs to the cry of a desperate child. My translation says he comes to the aid, and that's good, but it's the idea in the Greek that God is a father who's running to his child who's crying out in need. Father, I need you. I need you to help me. And he comes. He comes to your help. What allurement are you battling? We all have them. What trial, what temptation, what fear, what is it in your life that in your mind right now, you say, I need to come to Jesus and he will help me. He will come to my aid. Later on in Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are but yet without sin. What a great, available, sufficient, adequate, powerful, merciful friend he is. Jesus helps you. Astonishing realities here in Hebrews 2. Octor is making the claim. He's making the case that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than anything you could ever live for. He's better than anything you could trust in. Jesus is better. Chapter one, because he's God. Chapter two, because of his humanity, his incarnation. What a God. What a savior. What are these great realities today? He understands you. He frees you. He saves you, and he helps you. Let's close with these words from that familiar hymn, In Christ Alone. It says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin 
on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. Praise God for the work and the humanity in the incarnation of Christ. Let's pray.